0: Good to see you all here this morning. And for those who will be joining us on Wednesday night, which I know you all will be, we'll be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 22 if you'd like to read ahead uh, this week. And this morning we're going to continue through our journey in the book of Acts. We haven't looked at our PowerPoint verse yet this month because I'm reserving that for Father's Day and the verses prior to it. Uh, So next Sunday morning, we'll be looking at our PowerPoint verse for the month in great detail. But this morning, would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18? Acts 18, we'll finish off the chapter this morning, looking at verses 18 through 28. Now, last week, we recognized that... There are going to be tough times within our personal lives and within the history of the church. And we also noted that during those times, the devil is going to seek to exploit the opportunity and drive us into various things that are not best for our health as Christians. We titled our time, When the Going Gets Tough. And our three conclusions were, when the going gets tough, do not let the enemy drive you into isolation. We need to be together as a body of believers when times are getting rough for us as a collective group. We also noted that we are not to allow opposition to stop us from serving. God is always worthy of our service. He is always worthy of our very best. Amen? And we also reminded ourselves that we don't let the world tell us what we can preach. When they're saying, don't say this, don't say that, it's offensive to people. We need to remember that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And we just keep preaching Christ and him crucified like Paul did. Amen? Amen. Now, all the way back in Acts 5, 27 to 32, we're told that when they had brought them, the disciples and set them before the council and the high priest asked him saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who do what? Who obey him. Peter didn't mince any words. They said, you're trying to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter said, well, that's because that man's blood is on you. And you indeed hung him on a tree and murdered him and they were facing difficult times it was a rough patch so to speak early in the history of the church and we too at the end of the church age i believe are have come upon i should say perilous times we have many things happening in the world today and many bizarre things happening in our world today. It is bizarre to me that someone like Lady Gaga says that Vice President Mike Pence is the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. Why? Because his wife works at a school that doesn't allow homosexuals to be in their employ. It's a Christian school. Lady Gaga says, I'm a Christian woman. And what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome, end quote. Thank the Lord we have great theologians like Lady Gaga today to (laughs) guide us through the difficult times. Now, I'm not exactly sure what branch of the service Lady Gaga is in, but I would agree that all are welcome to become a Christian, but all Christians are called to repentance, and that is to repent from things the Bible has defined as sin. Now, remember what Paul said to the idol-loving Athenians. Back in chapter 17, 30 to 31, he said, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to do what? To repent. In this case, and context, it is of their idolatry, and idolatry is certainly a sin, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this uh, of this to all by raising him, the man who will judge all from the dead, obviously speaking of Jesus. Now, in our journey today, Paul leaves Corinth. He heads back to where his missionary journey began in Syrian Antioch, and he stops in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila, and then he leaves them there and heads out himself to the port at Caesarea, en route to Antioch. Now, while in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla are going to encounter a man named Apollos, who is described as being eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. Now, Paul would later acknowledge the gift that God had given to Apollos and what he would write about him and others associated with his ministry will give us our direction for the day. Now, in First Corinthians 16, 8 to 17, Paul said, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, this is something that's referred to in our text, and we'll look at that in a moment. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey, how? In peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to come with you, uh, to you with the brethren. But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand, stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with what love. I urge you, brethren. You know the household of Stephanas that at uh, the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints and you submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. They refresh my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men, or in other words, hold them in the same esteem that you hold me as one called to serve, minister, and teach the word. Now, One of the things I think we need to remember is that Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.10 was accused of being contemptible in his manner of communication. His speech was dubbed as contemptible, yet Apollos here is described as eloquent. Paul was an older man. Timothy was a younger man. Stephanus and Achaicus were Greek, Greek names at least. And Fortunatus was a Latin name and therefore he was likely a Roman. And Paul, in contrast to them, was Jewish. So you've got a man contemptible in speech, a man eloquent in speech, an older man, a younger man, a couple of Greeks and a Roman, and then a Jew. And Paul says all of them that had devoted themselves to the ministry and refreshed his spirit They are to be regarded as teachers and co-workers with him and comparable to Paul himself. Now, that brings us to our topic and our title today. And what I want to talk to you about this morning, we have simply titled, and here it is, The One Thing. The One Thing. And I'll explain what that means as we go. Now, in the midst of all of our differences within the church of personality, taste, and interpretations of scripture, we need to remember there is one thing that is more important than all else. It will be reminded to us by the story of a man Jesus healed who had been born blind. And the Pharisees were more concerned about what day the man was healed than that Jesus could heal someone born blind. He healed a man on the Sabbath. They called the man's parents in and stood them before the council and were questioning them. And the couple very wisely said back to the Pharisees, hey, he's a grown man. Ask him what happened. Well, in John nine twenty-four to 25, they called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus, he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. What are the next two words? One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now that's what we need to remember. That's the one thing we need to remember, that the Lord has opened our eyes to the truth about who he is. And listen, there's too much nonsense in the body of Christ today and not enough mercy and grace. Somebody say amen. Now, in the midst of all of our differences, we need to remember the one thing that we share, the one thing we all have in common is that we are a fallen people in a fallen world who were once blind, but now we can see. Now... This one thing that we all share in common is going to manifest itself in various traditions and practices, yet it doesn't diminish the one thing that Jesus has saved us all from a devil's hell. Somebody say, amen. Amen. So this morning, would you stand and read with me, please, as we examine the one thing through three things. You'll understand that in a moment, too. From Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 20 is at least where we'll begin. Acts eighteen eighteen. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. I'm sorry, let's go ahead and read all the way through. But took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when aquila and priscilla heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of god more accurately and when he desired to cross achaia the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him and when he arrived he greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he vigorously refuted the jews publicly showing from the scriptures that jesus is the christ and all god's people said yeah. And Father, we thank you for this wonderful text this morning. We thank you for that which we will be reminded of, that which we will take with us today. And would you give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying as our minds are drawn back to that one thing that changed our lives, your Son, our Savior, dying for our sins. We give you thanks for that today. Speak to us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You may be seen it. Our first reminder is actually going to come from our opening verses 18 to 21. As Paul departs after our last chapter, last verse, told us he stayed in Corinth for some 18 months because there was an opportunity there and there was no rising opposition. Now. The couple he met there began to travel with him, Aquila and Priscilla. And on their arrival in Ephesus, Paul leaves them to do their business and of tent making and most likely witnessing. And he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Now, this repeated scene needs no exegesis because we've seen that happen over and over and over. Paul goes to a city, he heads for the synagogue and then off to the Gentiles. Now, what is introduced to us here is going to take us to our first point of recognition this morning about the one thing, because we're told that Paul cut off his hair because he had taken a vow. And then when he was asked to remain in Ephesus, he says, I cannot go because I must, if at all possible, keep the coming feast in Jerusalem. Now, the feast that he wanted to keep was the Passover. The vow that he had taken was the Nazarite vow. The tradition that surrounded the vow was not to have any wine touch your lips, not to shave your head or, or cut your hair, rather, and to not go near a dead body for a prescribed period of time. Now, at the end of that time, the hair was to be cut, taken to Jerusalem at the feast, and then offered on the fire with the sacrifices of the feast time. Now, we know that keeping the Nazarite vow was the one thing that made Paul a better Christian than everybody else. Is that true? Uh, We actually know that Paul keeping the Nazarite vow showed that he was not actually a Christian because he was keeping a Jewish tradition. Is that true? No, of course not. Now, what we need to understand is that the Nazarite vow was a Jewish tradition in an effort to show complete consecration to God by not drinking wine, putting a razor to the head or hair or touching or coming near a dead body. It was symbolic of complete separation unto the Lord. Now, Paul would write to the church at Colossae in 216 to 19, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Oh, boy, is that going on today and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from who? From God. Paul would also write to the Romans in fourteen five to 8. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are what? We are the Lord's. Paul is addressing cultural traditions societal trends, practices within the church, and while Paul was a born-again Christian, he never forgot that he was a Jew. However, Paul did not demand that Gentile believers practice Judaism in order to be a Christian. And what he focused on with those who are of a different background and tradition is the one thing we all share. And that is in Christ, we are new creations. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now here, Paul takes a Nazarite vow. Here Paul doesn't put a razor to his head. Here Paul doesn't go near a dead body. Here Paul doesn't allow wine to come to his lips. Here Paul is taking his now shaved head, the hair of it that is, to the sacrifice in Jerusalem, a traditional practice of the Jews. And yet Paul is very clearly a born again Christian. And then he says to those in Colossa and he says to those in Rome, listen, These traditions that many practice, some may eat, some may not eat certain things, some may eat meat, sacrifice to an idol, some may not eat meat, but we are all the Lords in the midst of our non-heretical tradition. Somebody say, now, here's what we need to take away from what we've learned from Paul thus far. Listen this morning, good traditions can become bad doctrine by making them requirements. Good traditions can become bad doctrine by making them requirements. Now listen, there are many ways to express one's dedication or worship to God. Some of them may not be understood by some groups. Some may not like how someone expresses their commitment and dedication to God. Some may say, you know, Paul was basically telling others that they needed to be under the law by following the Nazarite vow, which wasn't true. Some may not have liked the practice. Some may not like it today. But listen, because people do things differently, to say they are not of the Lord is just as bad as saying that certain traditions are only of the Lord. I can't think of a better example than the worship wars that are going on today. This is the most visible battle of our time. Some people like hymns. Yeah, there's some people here that like him. Somebody say amen. amen. People like him. Some people prefer contemporary Christian music. Other people prefer folk style worship. Some country and still others believe that when you come into the sanctuary, you have to sing all the worship songs a cappella. Now, listen, here's the thing. When one group says the other group is wrong, this causes the accuser to take the place of God and know what's going on in someone's heart. And that is not something that any of us are qualified to do. And the same is true of preaching styles. Some prefer the guy who sits on the stool and like a storyteller, works his way and walks them through the Scripture. And some people learn better that way, and that is their preferred style. Others like somebody who's kind of loud and talks loud through the whole sermon and gets fired up once in a while. Some people prefer the fiery preacher. But listen, there's every style in between as well. And we can't sit here and say, you know, that guy talks on, uh, sits on a stool and he talks like he's not excited. That's not from the Lord. Or we cannot say, listen, that guy gets up there and he sounds like he's yelling at us. That's not of the Lord. We cannot take those positions. Now, listen, in 2 Timothy 2, 20 to 26, Paul writes to young Timothy, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful to who? The master prepared for every good work. And he gives this counsel. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now listen to what he says. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Is the devil still roaming the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour today? Does he still only come to steal kill and destroy the elements of the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us? And again, the answer is, yes, listen, we are of, in this very room, we are of different cultural backgrounds as the corporate body of Christ. And for Paul, an unnecessary Nazarite vow, attendance at a now fulfilled feast day was an expression of his commitment to the Lord as a Jewish Christian. Now, the same thing is true today. There are things that are God honoring in one culture or season of history that may not be to our liking and understanding. Now, many people today like to argue that you know, the church needs to have as its worship setting a choir accompanied by the organ and piano. Do you know that because the organ was initially used in pubs in Europe, when the organ made its way into the church, there were protests because it was ungodly to have an organ in church. And now people are saying you can only have the organ in church. You can't have the drums because they're of the devil. What a mess. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't get caught up in all these things that generate strife. I was in a church service on a Wednesday night one time in South Africa. And during the worship time, I mean early in the worship time, maybe within the first two measures of the very first song, there was instantly a 75 or 80 person long conga line taking laps around the church. And it lasted for 15 minutes. Now, if you do that here, we've got people who will no, I'm just kidding. But listen, you know, it wasn't something I was used to. It was different. And they were dancing and they were singing. But let me tell you this, it was real worship. They were expressing to God how much they loved him and cared for him and sang to him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It wasn't something that I had ever seen, but I wasn't going to sit there and say, that's not of the Lord because it doesn't happen at CCT. Or it's not part of the Calvary movement. Or the Baptists don't do that. Listen, I was there. It was real. It was an honest act of worship for them. It was a cultural thing. And I do believe that the Lord received and inhabited their praises. Listen, we need to be careful of saying our tradition is the only tradition, and if you don't follow our tradition, you're not saved. That is not how we are to conduct ourselves. Somebody say, now, let's pick it up in 22 and 23 and revisit those verses. We're told when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, I wanted to show you where Paul was. we got a picture to throw up here. And this time, there's not those two people standing in the way. This is where they landed. This is a place called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea. And this was a port city that Paul would land at where he would begin his 65-mile journey up to Jerusalem. And it's kind of interesting, whatever the scripture refers to Jerusalem and someone traveling there, you always go up to Jerusalem. Now, we're also told he went down to Syrian Antioch, but Syrian Antioch was actually due north of there. Now, he spent time there, then headed for Asia Minor, Galatia, and Phrygia. Now, This is a parenthesis into the narrative as to what was happening in the city of Ephesus. And within this, we find Paul's single-mindedness being revealed as he greets the church in Jerusalem where he goes to fulfill the vow, the Nazarite vow, the last portion of that vow at the Passover feast. And then he heads north to Antioch. He spends time there. And while the text doesn't state it explicitly, we can be be sure that he was doing what he did in Galatia and Phrygia, which is strengthening all the disciples. Now, the Greek word translated as strengthening means to support further, or it means to render more firm. He was deepening the faith and understanding and therefore the belief of those in these cities who had previously received Christ. Now, in Acts 14, 21 to 22, we're told that when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Again, this is his pattern. And he did so by exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, keep that phrase in mind because it's important. The fact is, in Acts 15, we're also told in 39 to 41, that the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia doing what? Strengthening the churches. Now, Paul strengthened the churches after the dispute with Barnabas, And the strengthening of the disciples in Acts 14 was after he was stoned in Lystra and assumed to be dead. And thus he says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to draw your minds back to what we mentioned last week. When the going gets tough, we cannot allow the opposition to stop or keep us from serving. Paul didn't, and we shouldn't. And that's where you say, now... Here's the conclusion about the one thing that has impacted our lives, our blindness now having been turned into sight. Here's the next thing we need to consider. Listen, one tradition common among all Christians should be blessing others. One tradition common among all Christians should be blessing others. That's what Paul was doing from place to place to place as he traveled. He was always seeking to be a blessing. Now, blessing others is not what you do after someone sneezes. Blessings can be words. They can be words of encouragement, exhortation, that do indeed strengthen other people. And James tells us in 3.10-12, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs. Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Now, I have to say... As James says, no, from the same mouth, blessings and cursings should not flow. And I think in our day, we have many who have blessings and cursings coming from their fingers as they place them on the keyboards. And I like to call them the church police. And they are in full swing today, condemning and criticizing everyone who isn't like them. These things ought not to be so. Somebody say, now, in first Peter three, eight to twelve, Peter says, Finally, all of you be of what? One mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do what good let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the lord is against those who what who do evil now i have to be honest i'm pretty thick skinned i don't usually have things bother me but as the church grew and as opportunities opened up to have an online presence both through our website And his channel, it took me a little bit of time to get used to being called of the devil, a heretic, godless. And I've even been called the Antichrist and all other names not proper for anyone's conversation have been associated with me as well by many of the keyboard cowards out there whose boldness comes strictly from their online anonymity. Now, It's not a fun thing to experience, and therefore it isn't something that any of us ought to be pursuing. We ought to be a blessing to one another, even online. Oh man, that was really weak. Even online, we ought to be a blessing to one another, amen? Now, I've always found it noteworthy that in the list of six things the Lord hates, and seven that are an abomination to Him, He lists a series of actions, and then He identifies an individual one who sows discord among the brethren is something the lord hates but listen being a blessing or not is not limited to words it includes our actions and galatians 4 15 says what then was the blessing you enjoyed for i bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, some believe that this is a reference to Paul's thorn in the flesh that he petitioned the Lord three times to take from him. Some say he suffered from ophthalmia or one of the other eye-related maladies of the day. Others say it's possible that the vision problem was actually the aftermath of having been stoned in Lystra. And whatever the case, the point is, is that there were those in Galatia who would have given their eyes to help Paul's situation if it were possible. Now this too is to be a part of every Christian's practice. And Paul here very clearly is employing some hyperbole and he simply is underscoring the height of being a blessing that we ought to aspire to. And he would go on later in Galatians and say in 6, 9 to 10, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not what? Lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to who? To all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, Paul, after the Barnabas battle and the stoning at Lystra, was doing what he had always done. He was strengthening others and thus being a blessing to them. Now, later in Acts twenty thirty-two to 35, Luke will write, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do what? Build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Then Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities. For those who are with me, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must... What's the next word? Support Support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more what? Blessed Blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that today? Have you made it your practice to be a blessing? It is the one trait that should be common among us all, even within the diversity of traditions and practices within the church. Now let's take a second read through 24 to 28. Now we're told about the certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, Egypt, an eloquent man, mighty in scriptures, who came to Ephesus. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross Achaia, The brethren wrote and exhorted the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he had greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews, how? Publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, while Paul is out strengthening all the disciples, Apollos, an Egyptian Jew, described as eloquent and mighty in scriptures, arrives in Ephesus. He knew the word. He was unusually, unusually educated in Alexandria where it was kind of a uh, city similar to that of Athens and its reputation for knowledge. The greatest library in the world was in Alexandria. It was home to Euclid, Porphyry, uh, Plotinus, and Philo, a philosopher, at the very time that Jesus walked the earth. The Septuagint was translated there, and Apollos was kind of a synthesis of Hebrew and Greek learning and culture. We're told that he was fervent in spirit. That means, the word fervent means he was boiling or fiery hot as a speaker. He knew the word. But on this Pentecost Sunday morning that we're sitting here today, as my wife so wonderfully pointed out at the i m His conference, he was like many. He'd been to the cross, but he never made it to Pentecost. He never began to walk in the power of the Spirit. And only knowing the baptism of John has led some to think that he was actually one of John the Baptist's disciples. We're told he boldly spoke in the synagogue and Aquila and Priscilla posted on Facebook how lousy his message was and everything that they didn't like about his teaching. Is that what it says? They took him aside privately and explained to him that he was missing something in his message. And there was more to the faith and the baptism that John taught, the baptism of repentance, there was also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk more about this in chapter 19, about the possibility of being saved yet not filled with the Spirit at that point in time, as we'll encounter that very thing in our opening verses. Now, Priscilla and Aquila recognized some deficiencies in Apollos' understanding, yet they did not correct him in public. There was no scorn, there was no criticism, there was no rejection, they didn't embarrass him. And listen, this is what God's grace does to us. It makes us like Jesus. Now, it's been an interesting few days. And my good friend, Amir Sarfati, had a major gaffe that was recorded and removed from uh, social media, from YouTube. He said something that he himself didn't believe. He said something that he actually had edited out of the message as it was posted. Someone decided to dig it up and throw it out there on Facebook and therefore accuse Amir of being a heretic and those who are associated with him, including myself, Jack Hibbs, and Jan Markell. We are all guilty by association because we have stood on the same stage as Amir. Now, what Amir said, by his own admission, was wrong. And it was a major, major goof. And what he said was, in the midst of a message that was addressing all the different ways that Jesus in the Old Testament is identified, he said, Jesus is Michael, the archangel. Well, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. And the fact is, there has been a major attack on him and therefore the rest of us because of that statement that he actually misspoke and admitted he misspoke, and even responded by cutting and pasting a reply to someone who had emailed him about what the Jehovah Witnesses believe, and that has lit a further fire. Now, here's the interesting thing. There are those, and some of them, who are prominent and well-known in the online community for attacking other people who have done just that. And all they have done is say, heretic, 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 because Amir said something that is not true, and that he himself doesn't believe. But here's the problem. All of those who have attacked him have failed to mention that there are those within Judaism who believe and including in the Midrash, the commentary on the Old Testament, that Michael the archangel is actually a title for the pre-incarnate Christ. There are those within Judaism who believe that. There are evangelical Christian Jews in Israel today who still believe that because Michael's name, Mikael, means who is like God. There are elements of Judaism that believe that Michael is the one who dealt with Abraham. That Michael is the one who wrestled with Jacob. That Michael is the one who stood before Joshua. There are many Jews who believe this, or elements of Judaism, that believe and teach this. I don't agree with that. Amir doesn't agree with that. But yet nobody mentioned that fact. Besides the fact, now get this this morning. C.H. Spurgeon in three of his books said Michael the Archangel is none other than Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, the 18th century commentator, said Michael the Archangel is an Old Testament title for a theophany and appearance of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said that the Michael the Archangel is a way to describe an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, just like the phrase the angel of the Lord, just like the phrase the branch, just like the phrase the Holy only one of Israel. But these attackers didn't mention any of those other things. All they wanted to do was tear somebody down. And that is not the job of the church. We are to bless one another. We are to build one another up. We are not to go online and attack with half-truths and lies. Now, I will say this. Matthew Henry's wrong. John Calvin's wrong. C.H. Spurgeon is wrong. And the reason I say that is for this reason, the same thing you would describe and distinguish a parable from an actual story. When a proper name is used, that's identifying a specific individual. Michael is an angel. Jesus is not Michael, never was Michael. I don't believe that. Amir doesn't believe that. And it was a big time goof, but there's no grace, no mercy, just calls for heresy. And James says these things ought not to be so. Somebody say amen. Amen. And yes, it aggravates me. It aggravates me to see people do the things they do online with half the information or misinformation just because they want to harm another's ministry. Now, Romans 12, 9 to 13 says, let love be without what? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly online, talking about other people, continuing steadfastly in what? Prayer, distributing to the needs of the saint, given to hospitality. Listen, when Apollos desired to go to Achaia, Peloponnesus, or southern Greece, the brethren in Ephesus wrote letters on his behalf, exhorting the apostles or the disciples to welcome him as a brother and teacher. The end result was when they did that, he greatly helped them by vigorously refuting the Jews publicly showing from the scriptures those of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, kind of interesting, the word Achaia actually means trouble. So what Apollos said, in essence, was he wanted to walk into trouble. And that's often what happens when we seek to go out and fulfill the word of the Lord. But he wound up encouraging others to receive Christ, even as he continued his own ministry and journey. Now, it's interesting that we have in our text an error or shortfall in one's teaching, corrected privately. And then by comparison, we have a refutation of the Jews publicly. Now, what was the determining factor about how the two situations were handled? Well, the issue, obviously, was the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many things attached to the deity of Christ, including the veracity of the scriptures. The sufficiency of shed blood as a remission for our sins attached to the deity of Christ is also his right to rule and reign and our obligation, therefore, to submit to him as Lord over our lives. Now, listen, if Jesus is not God, his death was insufficient. His words are insignificant and his rights as a ruler are non-existent. But he is God with us. He is God become flesh who tabernacled among us. Now here's the final piece of the one thing we need to recognize this morning. Listen, are you ready? Every Christian, say every Christian. Every Christian should respect and honor the word of God. Every Christian should respect and honor the word of God. Listen this morning. The Bible does not contain the word of God. The Bible is the word of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and everything in between. The word of God has even presented us uh, to us as the light of men that darkness could not comprehend, meaning to lay hold of or accept. And then in John 1, we're told in 1 to 5, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word what Was was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not what? Comprehend it. Then we're told later in one fourteen, the word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Hebrews thirteen eight reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen now. If Jesus is the word and Jesus doesn't change, then the word doesn't change to accommodate society. The word too is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jews denied the deity of Jesus and thus denied the word they claimed to revere. And the reverse is actually happening today with things like we mentioned with Lady Gaga. Jesus is being accepted and his word is being rejected. Now listen, you can't have Jesus and reject his word for the two are inseparable. Jesus is the word of God. Now, 1 John 2, 3 to 6 The beloved says this, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. Remember, Jesus was full of grace and truth. But whoever keeps his what? Word, that's where the commandments are recorded. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, this takes us back to what I've said many times before, and I'll say it again this morning. There is only one kind of Christian, and that's a born-again Christian. If you're not born-again, you're not a Christian. If you are born-again, and you at your church do a conga line around the sanctuary it's an act of worship to God, you're still a Christian. That was weak. You're still a Christian. Amen? If you're born again and you prefer the organ, piano, and the choir, you're still a Christian. If you're born again and you prefer a worship band like we have, you're still a Christian. If you're born again and you believe the music ought to be a cappella in the church, but you're born again, you're still a Christian. If you think that the church ought to have pews and not theater seats, you're still a Christian. Listen, we need to lighten up on some of these things that we deal with with one another. Listen, heresy is heresy, and the standard by which it is measured is the word of God. And we are to be Bereans, we are to hold people, hold each other accountable according to their teachings. And yes, we have the responsibility to expose the unfruitful works of darkness according to Ephesians 5.11. Well, listen, we cannot define the unfruitful works of darkness ourselves. We will find them defined for us in the Word of God as we do here in the refutation, the vigorous refutation of the Jews publicly by Apollos is our example of the when. Now, the one thing that we should all share is being a blessing to others, even though they may have man-made expressions and traditions associated with worshiping and consecrating themselves to God that are different than us. And we cannot say, you have to do it like me or you are not saved. Listen, the one thing has many things attached to it, but it all starts in the same place for every born-again Christian. And that is, I once was blind, but now I see. Somebody say, "Amen." Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the clarity. We thank you for the timeliness of it on this Pentecost Sunday, when your church was empowered, when the Jews recognized the Feast of Weeks, And Lord, we recognize that there is coming a day where we are going to tabernacle with you forever when we come back with you to this earth. And Lord, in the meantime, may we remember the things that you did and may we walk as you walked and not be found to be liars without the truth present within us. And may we, Lord, as you were, be kind to the unthankful and the evil. May we, Lord strengthen one another and build each other up and not tear one another down. And Lord, help us, especially in this technological age where things can spread like wildfire that are one person's opinion or something that's contrary to their tradition. And help us not to be participants in damaging the greater cause of Christ and the one thing we all share, even when somebody makes a terrible goof in their communication. Help us, Lord, to be more merciful and gracious, even as you are to us. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful text this morning, this Pentecost Sunday. And would we leave this place like Apollos, speaking like hot boiling water or on fire for you, telling others that Jesus is the Christ, reasoning with them from the scriptures. Help us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. It was funny, I heard a rabbi teaching one time. And I thought, thought it was interesting. And he was criticizing Christians for referring to a woman he called Rahab. If you remember, there was a woman named Rahab who hid the spies and Uh, Her house was spared when the walls of Jericho came down. And he said, I don't know why Christians always want to identify somebody with their sin. Why do they call her Rahab the harlot? Would you like to get to heaven and be called Joe the liar? Or Susie the fornicator? Or something that you were once guilty of? And it seems like that is the tendency today. Let's not participate in that. Amen? Amen? Let's not know one another by our failures. Let's know one another by our building each other up in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be a blessing to one another, and not one who tears someone else down. Somebody say, Amen. 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 Would you all stand this morning?